Tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney, which is here in Australia, yes, I believe at 131 York Street. This Aladdin's Cave for readers is full of jewels, yes, and has been family run since 1968. And if you're listening to the Literary Salon, you can go to abbeys.com.au and get a 10% discount off all fiction by entering SALON in caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbeys. And the owner is at the back over there going, yes, thank you very much. And they, they are a lovely bunch of people. We have one final guest this evening, one incredible man who really, in this country particularly, doesn't need um, much introduction, but I will um, give him one anyway. When I met him, I said, oh, it's very nice to meet you, Mr. Keneally. And he kind of scoffed and said, I can't do the accent, but I, no, I'm not even going to try. But he just said, call me Tom. And they gave me this kind of big cuddle and, and brushed his beard against me. And I thought how nice it would be to live in that beard. How restful it would be to live in Tom Keneally's beard. Um, um, he is perhaps, so, we, so he came and did my salon in London and then we met in Hay and we did a lovely interview in Hay. Um, he is perhaps best known as the author of Schindler's Ark, um, which became um, Schindler's List. And he just told me something about it. He said, you know, the next day after the movie came out, Schindler's List became rhyming slang for pissed. Which I can't actually, but is that true? I'm Schindler's List, I'm pissed. Dear God, you people. And the elevator in my hotel was made by a company called Schindler, and I got into it this morning and I was like, I'm in Schindler's Lift, and I'm interviewing Tom Keneally tonight. This is just all a bit much. Um, but anyway, he is an, an, incredible, an incredible writer of fiction and of non-fiction. He's written over, um, over 30 novels, and um, his most recent novel, which is bloody brilliant, um, it's called Shame, um, Shame and the Captives. He's going to read a wee bit from it tonight. He is, along with your uh, Great Barrier Reef, a designated Australian living national treasure. Um, um, please welcome him to the stage, Thomas Tom Keneally. Well, uh, great pleasure because your place in Shoreditch. Is the sound okay, kids? Yes. Uh, your, um, your place in Shoreditch is remarkable because it's a reading where everyone's under 32. Mm. There isn't a walking frame in sight. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, I remember that uh, one of the readers was yourself. And there was a woman called A.M. Holmes, mm. whom I'd taught in inverted commas at NYU. Uh, my teaching method was based on the fact that Leo Buring Chardonnay only cost $7 a bottle in New York. <laughs> and I served that at the graduate seminars. And that gave me a great reputation for pedagogy. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, what, what was I am she like Holmes. as a student? What was she like as a student? Was she Oh, she was dynamite-driven. She? She, you know, it's funny uh, that she wasn't the best writer. Mm. Hunger is everything if you want to be a writer. Uh, hunger will overcome all obstacles. Uh, I mean, it is, it, it's in tune with my... Uh, aphorism that you can't let the fact you can't write stop you producing literature. So we clearly, cl clearly lots of people believe that. 
<laughs> yeah, and so, um, yeah, I remember there was a writer called T.E. Selassie. Oh, yes, Tai Selassie. Uh, Tai Selassie. Yes. How did her book go? It did very Ghana well. Ghana must go. Yeah, it did very well. I mean, she, yeah. and she's uh, she's one of the grantor that, you know, uh, she made the grantor list, and yeah. I thought that book was very good. Yes, it's a great novel. Uh, it reminded me of another wonderful novel about uh, Africa. I should be talking about my own book, shouldn't I? We'll get Instead to that. Instead of Nigerian novels, but uh, the one called Half a Yellow Sun. Mm, yes, um, fantastic book. Another magnificent book, yes. But let's, let's talk about your magnificent book. Oh, thank God. I thought you'd never get that. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, is, which is, again, you, you know, grappling once more with the war, another dimension of the war. And it's based, again, on... The, there's a fragment... Well, more than a fragment of truth. There's a great yeah. big chunk of truth at the middle of this book, a real thing that happened, and you've embroidered um, yes. around the edges. So tell us, tell us about Shame and the Captain. I've faced the fact that I'm ineluctably a child of World War II. My father was in the Middle East for nearly three years. And so people say it's strange that I wrote a book like Schindler, but I was acquainted at one remove with the Third Reich all through the early years of the war because my father would send me nifty um, detritus from North Africa detritus of the battlefields, including holsters, a uh, very pistol, uh, a Luger holster, uh, Feldwebel stripes from the Africa Corps, Africa Corps insignia, uh, fascist uh, postcards, fascist uh, Italian postcards, I should say, uh, Italian insignia, etc., etc. And I get these cake tins in a place called Homebush in New South Wales, which is where we had the Olympics. When I wrote my first book, a critic said, where in God's name is Homebush? And uh, there is a divinity that listens to such things. There's a divinity that doesn't stop planes or economies crashing, but it listens to things like, where in God's name is Homebush? And in 2000, Homebush was where the Olympics were. Uh, but um, She's from Homebush. Yeah. <laughs> in, in any case, uh, um, I was very close to the Third Reich at an early age. It helped me all those... Uh, uh, nifty Nazi insignia and so on helped me not to get beaten up by bigger boys. I'd say, look at this, you know, and they'd forget to beat me up for days at a time. And uh, so I was one degree of separation from the Third Reich. So that, I mean, it was your childhood, and it was where your dad was, and it's who he yeah, was fighting, and, and it's who uh, you were rooting for and, and against. While my father was away, there was a um, prisoner of war camp out in Kaura. It was a beautiful town surrounded by hills with granite on them. And it's uh, well, probably about five hours' drive from Sydney. And it had a POW camp. It had uh, two compounds of Italians. And the Italians uh, were everything from fascist to uh, social democrat, to anarchist, to Marxist, to Trotskyist. 
and they used to have political brawls with each other uh, over um, all that. And because they, the ones that weren't laid down misere uh, Kamiche Neri, uh, black shirts, were mm. sent out to the farms. Now, Australia in those days was so much white Australia and was so much based in our immigration on the northern, uh, on uh, the, the, the British Isles, that um, it was confidently said that no decent Australian girl, however lonely, wouldn't look twice at a swarthy Dago POW. Well, the problem was some of them looked like Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, this was Australia's first big encounter with the Italians. And it was, of course, the encounter at a time we were trying to maintain white Australia and to exclude Asia a forlorn uh, determination uh, which was ultimately defeated, as you see in the streets of Sydney uh, now. But um, the Japanese were very suspect, both for their militarism, for the uh, fact that they were our uh, rather um, determined enemies, that they had nearly reached us that they bombed Northern Australia. And I remember a night in August 1944 when a 1,000 young Japanese charged the wire. And uh, we thought in Sydney that we were, my father was still overseas, we thought that we were the object of their determination. But in fact, the object of their determination it struck me as odd when I found out was that they were trying, they had voted to seek death. Mm. They did not expect and had not voted to survive. They meant to charge the wire, to be mown down. Those who escaped were supposed to create maximum mayhem amongst Australian military forces, but not amongst the civilian uh, population. Uh, and they'd specifically ruled out attacking the civilian well, I mean, population. it was a form of mass suicide, wasn't yeah, it? Yes, yeah. it was mass suicide. And I was fascinated, having studied to be a monk when I was young, I was, I'll just reach, reach for the water. Generally, if you remain a monk, you reach for something much stronger than water. <laughs> But you, you trained as a monk and you trained as a priest, but you were never ordained, were you? No, no. You were never I, Father I, I Thomas. Lived, I, yeah, I, I never... I, I was ordained a deacon and uh, uh, then I left. I was in the same seminary as our uh, Prime Minister, um, Tony Abbott, and I, I've always wondered why I never managed to achieve the level of wisdom that he did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I've always been grateful I didn't. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, yeah, in my days, we were mainly frustrated uh, lower middle class or working class uh, young people with Irish names like Keneally, Murphy, Flaherty, Foley, and so on. Mm. Um, 
and we uh, were very um, politically left-wing, social democrat, and yet we subscribed to this totalitarian church. And the fact that it was totalitarian accounted for the fact that so many of us in the end left it. Mm. Uh, most of my friends left it after ordina ordination, but some are still in it. There's a great Australian Jesuit here who's a huge champion of Aboriginal uh, equity and called Frank Brennan. And he is, he's spoken at this festival. He is a, um, uh, he's a Jesuit, but we've all got our faults. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, so there were a lot of good people stuck in there. But, uh, I mean, it's a pretty forlorn hope. When you get everyone's getting excited about this pope, that he's got a soul, you know, you shouldn't have, Every pope should have a bloody soul. They shouldn't be apparatchiks. And they've all been bloody apparatchiks. And so the, the problem is that the apparatchiks who uh, fill the curia in Rome will quickly, I fear, snuff out the, the light of a man of vision. And I hope it's not the case. I will be delighted if it's not the case case, but anyhow, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a ruined monk who then became, had nothing else to do but write novels because I had no social life. And I <laughs> met my wife through my first novel. So, the lovely Judy you know, who is here. And see, in 1963, 64, to write a novel in Australia was like being a bicycling dog. We didn't, we barely believed in ourselves enough to believe that we could write novels. And to get one written, and then to be able to say, girls were just starting to come to bars at that stage. Mm. Now, the sort of girls who were interested in the fact that you were a ruined monk, well, not the sort of girls you'd like to go out. <laughs> but then, if I could, after my first novel was published, an absolutely impossible technical mess of a novel, I could smooth back my residual auburn hair and say, I'm a novelist, actually. You know. <laughs> that was big time in Australia in 1964. <laughs> and... Um, Let's, let's go from 1964, though, back to that night in 1944, which is the night... Um, uh, the night, this happened. Well, we were terrified, book. and as I say, we thought they were coming for us. And it's interesting, people began to see Japanese escapees all over Sydney. Their fears produced phantoms. And... Um, the, the, this is an interesting human phenomenon, and we thought, therefore, that at any hour um, there would be a knock on our door. And so how and were you prepared for that? Were you, what, what did you do? What did your well, family do? Well, yes, we, we'd had a few encounters with the Japanese. The biggest encounter was the night of uh, May 13th, 
the 31st 1942, when the midget submarines got into Sydney Harbour and tried to sink the USS Chicago. That was a great night. That was the night... <laughs> that was the night that we all got under the table and put a mattress on top of the table. Really? We did not suffer like you guys did, but we thought we were going to. And it was very interesting. An aunt of mine... I knew that we'd won the war when an aunt of mine, getting down under the table, knocked over a heinously ugly crockery kookaburra that my parents had been given as a wedding present. And it shattered. And I thought, oh, God, the Japanese are in for it now. <laughs> and it, <laughs> no. and it turned out to be the case. Will, yeah. you, will you read to us a, a, a wee bit about... Um, about um, the, the, the first meeting with, with the Dago, the, the, the potentially treacherous Dago, yes, as, the, as he is called in the book. We will come to discuss the this casual is a, racism. A, a young woman called Alice, whose husband is a POW, captured in Greece, and uh, captured in Crete. Um, and she thinks that if she looks at POWs in Cara, she will see, she will get a clue to what her husband's going through. It's an irrational suspicion, but a week after the recalcitrant, what a, name, what a word to use late at night, <laughs> uh, recalcitrant Japanese had made a show of shoveling gravel, Alice watched as a truck delivered her father-in-law's Italian to the Herman farm. Since she expected to see a short, swart peasant with variable agricultural skills, her interest was not at the peak it had been in her previous encounter with the Japanese prisoners. Duncan had received a telephone call only the day before from the control centre to tell him of the prisoners' imminent arrival. Since then, the idea had grown in Alice that she might learn something useful from an Italian labourer. You could talk to an Italian. The axiom was common in the town. The Dagos are no problem. They were Europeans, or close enough anyhow. Now Duncan sat on the veranda, smoking and waiting for the truck. And as he watched the gate, Alice observed him. When the camouflage two-tonner came in through the front gate of the farm and pulled up outside the farmhouse. Its canopy was off, and Alice could see half a dozen prisoners sitting in the back, a two-door black Ford with a pointed grill that seemed sharp as a knife, came onto the farm behind the truck and also pulled up. The sergeant from the control centre got down from the front seat and met up with an elderly but vigorous man in a dark suit who had disembarked from the Ford. They advanced through the garden gate towards the farmhouse. The civilian was the Swiss general practitioner from Barrel who had been given the job by the Red Cross of occasionally escorting prisoners to the farms to which they were assigned. His duty was to ensure that the farmer maintained certain standards of treatment of the labourer he was receiving. Duncan warmly shook 
both men's hands as they reached the veranda. He was so conscientious about all this that he'd placed a fountain pen and a bottle of ink ready for use on the table at which he had been sitting. The men handed him their two sets of paper, the government's papers and those of the Red Cross for his study. He invited both of them to sit while he scanned the papers page by page, the sergeant explaining control centers clauses, and then the elderly gentleman speaking of the Red Cross's concerns. The prisoner had by now been ordered by the driver to jump down and was standing with his knapsack on the packed earth outside the gate. The man still on the truck and bound for other farms yelled their Italian batonage in Duncan's prisoner's direction, and the prisoner, carrying his jacket and wearing maroon shirt and pants, smiled briefly and briefly again, making a gesture that signaled he preferred they should keep things down and not make trouble for him. Alice, meanwhile, unseen, confirmed by further study that the man was angular and fairly tall by the standards Gorwell imagined Italians to be. So the idea of short, compact peasant power was gone. A belt around his waist, waist gave some style and shape to his slim hips. She knew his labor would earn him a certain number of pounds sterling per month, but the government, not Duncan, paid that. As for Duncan, she knew he got a small extra ration of petrol to take the Italian to mass on Sundays. So it's okay. I mean, it's not bad, but it's your normal. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's an incredible, <laughs> incredible novel. And what I, what I love there is, is that she's, she's, she's got her racist idea of what, of what the day will it's be like. It's not a great novel, though. That's the oh, problem. Oh, no, 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 no. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> but but what, what's fascinating about it is, is that you confront us with all this quite horrible casual racism through, through, through the yeah, novel. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I, I, and I, was, I, I was reading it and there were... You know, it was very uncomfortable at points. And of course, what you do is you um, you confound that by 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 confronting the people with the racism, and then they're confronted with individuals like Giancarlo, and they yeah. realise this is a person with a story and a family yes. and a history and and a faith. Yes, and uh, this this was fascinating. The Australian bush was full of um, when I went on the road promoting this book, um, trying to sell up the sales from 10 to about 17, uh, the normal author's endeavour. Um, I had calls come into radio stations from uh, people who remembered aunts who fell in love with the Italian prisoner on the farm. Uh, and it, it it, that bit certainly resonated but the Japanese bit did too. I've got to say, in pride, not all Australians are Tony Abbott. Some of us mm. are human beings. And um, <laughs> out in Kara, I'm sorry, the Liberals have just left the room. Sorry. But, <laughs> in Kara, which you call Gowell in the book, you fictionalised <laughs> the place. Uh, Gowell, yeah. And, and uh, 
Judy and I went out to the last reunion of the, the last anniversary of the outbreak, and they had uh, one of the Japanese soldiers who escaped on the, that night. Really? And who got out into the main road, and he voted to suicide, and then he just saw all these men, these kids, these Japanese kids falling around him, and he his instinct was simply to take to a ditch, and he didn't survive. He's a private first class, and he's now 94. Now, that town, Kaura, in the, in the 50s, at the height of anti-Japanese fervor, uh, began to tend the graves of the young Japanese that charged the wire. How many were killed? Um... Well, nearly 300 and uh, six Australians, and they began to tend the graves, and uh, then they began to ask Japanese students to their high school. So by now, the whole, that there are middle-aged Japanese people who went to Kara High School and who come back all the time and have this wonderful relationship with us. And on the, uh, the, the night of the dinner out in Kara, there were Japanese school kids dancing with Australian school kids to the sound of a bush band. And this private first class who'd survived the outbreak was standing by clapping time to their dancing. And I thought, you know, what a tragedy we don't dance first and kill each other 70 years afterwards. Mm. The dancing might, if we danced first instead of killing each other first, I mean, it is a fatuous idea because we'll always be persuaded to kill each other first, sadly. But um, it, it, yeah, it was nice something. I had an aunt whose men folk was all, all, were all away. And she was out there at that stage. And she slept with an axe. When my father got back from the You say the that war, she slept with an axe. That's not she slept with an axe. She yeah. slept with an, a, a, an actual axe. A-X-E, yeah. A-X-E, okay, just, just check Which it. Which we call an axe. Yeah, okay. It's bad enough when you sleep with an axe. Sleeping with an axe is a whole other, other situation. <laughs> And she uh, not, did she ever use the axe? No, she never had to use it against the Japanese. But she, they, they were in the area. Two of them, two of them that uh, suicided on the railway tracks were near her. When, and um, uh, my father, when he got back from the war, was sexist enough to ask, did the axe complain? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> When, when uh, in, in Amy, we didn't get to this in Amy's novel, but in, in Amy's novel, one of the uh, uh, characters who is an American who is a German was in is interned in America with Germans and Japanese yeah. who are considered a, a, a foreign threat. And we don't often think about the experience of those people. And this is the first novel that I've read that's dealt with the Australian experience of interning not just soldiers, but also people who are, you know, who are foreign uh, elements w w within yeah. the culture and it got me thinking to something you said in an interview not too long ago which was about detention centers um in, in this oh, in this gee. country and, I, and, and we have them in the uk as well with people who you know who we feel we must contain and this situation is 1944 but actually in some ways it does feel like we might be moving closer towards that yes uh, I, I think 
think uh, that our long-term detention centres in Australia are evoking suicidal impulse. Uh, they would evoke it in me mm. if I'd left my home and presumed to impose myself upon the attention of Australian immigration. And I'd... Um, uh, uh, the, the uh, degree of mental illness in our detention centres is something that all the reputable psychiatric organisations have warned off. Mm. But it, it, sadly, it doesn't resonate with either the coalition or the Liberal Party here. So, I mean, there are some Australians that are... I, I think it's beginning to coarsen our sensibility to these things. Yesterday we had a Prime Minister who said that if the Indonesians, Thais and Malaysians go to the aid of boats in danger, mm. he won't because it will only encourage more people smuggling. Now this is like someone in your street who runs to your door and says, my house is on fire, uh, can you let me use your phone? Uh, you don't say who set it on fire. What was your motivation? Did you have good wiring? Hmm. Are you imposing on me? You want to use my phone for nothing. Uh, how, can I how can I be sure I can get you out after you've used the phone? No, sorry, let your house burn down. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's what we're... That's what we're hearing, mm. and we're hearing that, uh, I'm appalled to say, from the Labor Party, we're hearing similar things too. We're told that... Uh, I've heard more nonsense, more ridiculous utterances from Labor people uh, than I've heard from the Liberal Party, whom you whom I was raised to expect to say dumb things. Uh, but, uh, I've heard the, the, you know, the, the party of the, the punters uh, saying the most extreme things about uh, uh, people from Iran, people from Sri Lanka, former Labour government, suspended processing Tamil refugees, because Sri Lanka had become so stable yes, and right. so democratic. And uh, at the same time as they said that, our foreign affairs were saying, don't, don't travel to yes, Sri Lanka unless you have to because it's unstable. Now, let me take you back to the beginning of our conversation where you said you, you grew up with the Third Reich right there. You know, your dad was telling you about them. You were having stuff sent to you. You know, you, yeah. have, you probably still have those, those bits and pieces that were sent to you in cake tins. And when we last spoke in England um, about Daughters of Mars, your novel before, that oh, yeah. wonderful great big doorstop of a novel, um, where I learned more about Gallipoli than I had done in any other book, um, and you said to me, oh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to write another one. And, and yet you have. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do next? Are you going to lie to me again? Or are you actually going to be oh, honest no. about what you're doing? No, I'm, I, I am. Um, my name is Tom Keneally. And I'm the literary equivalent of an alcoholic. <laughs> I can't stop. 
Uh, Nobody wants you to stall. <laughs> Nobody wants you to stall. Uh, I, I came across this story a couple of years ago. Of a, but, you know, in old age, under the influence of grandchildren, we go for long bush walks. And I found out from my grandchildren and from my daughter that my rap nursery rhymes annoy the crap out of my daughter. And the grandchildren... He did say rap nursery rhymes, just in case yeah. you were wondering. We're going to get to them. Rap nursery rhymes for children as young as 40. And you ask me what I'm doing. I'm trying to get published. Alan and Unwin, for whom I've written all these great histories, have said no. And this is... Um, I, I, rap nursery rhymes for children as young as 40 is my great project of the future. Listen, we can get it crowdfunded right here. There are enough people in this room that can... Yeah, can we? Yes, we can. Will you give, it, will you give us maybe the Humpty Dumpty? Maybe the... Oh, the Humpty Dumpty. Any, can called, anybody beatbox? I'm not... If there is a beatbox... It's called The Ovoid Falls. This dude named Humpty wants to climb this wall and the obvious risk is that he'll take a fall. Cause heights are vertical, Humpty's round. If you're spherical, you're better staying on the ground. But, <laughs> sti <laughs> but still raving on about his dream, Hump climbs the thing and we hear his scream. The fire brigade's first on the scene. You know those boys, they're pretty keen. But the fire chief says, this is inhuman. Has anyone ever seen so much albumen? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> he calls the Marines, and they line up well, but how are they going to get an ovoid back in his shell? So up come the cops and the FBI saying, you ain't worth nothing, son, except to fry. <laughs> The whole world has been waiting for a rap that involves inhumane and albumen. That is just, that is, that is next level. That is incredible. We can get that crowdfunded right here. Please join me in thanking Tom Keneally. Thank you. And say a thank you to all our authors tonight, Amy Bloom, Anthony Horowitz, and Tom Keneally, and to you for being here. Um, and to our wonderful venue, and to Gemma Burrell and the Sydney Writers Festival for having us. And uh, very quickly, tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney, in Australia. I believe uh, 131 York Street. This Aladdin's Cave for readers is full of jewels and has been family-run since 1968. If you're listening to the Literary Salon, particularly if you're listening to it on British Airways, because it's on there, I'll listen to myself all the way home. Uh, can go to abbeys.com.au and get 10% discount off all fiction by entering Salon Caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbeys. Thank you, all of you, for being here tonight and to our incredible <laughs> authors. To Amy Bloom, Anthony Horowitz and Tom Keneally.